Christmas podcast. I'm Craig Kringle. I know people who were born on Christmas, and I know some people who actually died on Christmas Day, but I don't know of many people who were actually murdered on Christmas. Luckily, American traditional and folk music fills that gap for us all. It's a Christmas miracle. Oh, and happy Thanksgiving. I figured I'd put this one out on Thanksgiving because everyone needs an excuse to get away from your family for an hour or so on these special days. And everyone will get a little vicarious fun from songs about people killing their loved ones on the holidays just seemed like the best, most appropriate way to mark the first year where everyone's getting physically back together with uncles and aunts and grandparents and step-siblings and whoever, a good half of whom probably make you want to murder. Maybe it's their politics. Maybe it's that they still make you feel like you're 12. Maybe they're still criticizing the person you married or the job you chose or the fact that you still wear your hair like that. Whatever. What I'm really trying to say is that I wanted to wish everyone a happy Thanksgiving by mixing up some music, murder, and melancholy. Not that the songs here are all downers. I mean, I know a lot of you are big Over the Garden Wall fans. And if you don't know what that is, it's my favorite Halloween-ish cartoon. It has this wonderful sort of old-timey American vibe. But if you jive to the music in that show, you're going to love this one. Even though it's about murder on Christmas instead of, you know, little kids. So this show came about a little differently from usual. I actually do another podcast too, not just this one. So most of you probably haven't heard of it and probably wouldn't even care because it's even more niche than me chatting up people about half-forgotten holiday folklore. It's about one of my favorite writers named Gene Wolfe, a beautiful, intricate, mysterious, puzzling science fiction fantasy writer. A buddy and I are reading through his magnum opus, The Book of the New Sun, going chapter by chapter, sometimes even sentence by sentence. It's that dense. It's also strange. And I guarantee you, even if everyone listening to this tried to read it, and really, you should, but I bet less than 10% of you would actually finish the books. There are four of them, in fact, or five, depending on how you count. Or 12. Like I said, it's complicated. So a lot of things aren't meant to be understood until you finish the whole thing or reread it. And that's why our other show is called Rereading Wolf. The audience is for people who preferably read Book of the New Sun at least twice. Just on the cusp of mass market success, we are not. Anyway, my co-host there, James Wynn, is one of those guys who loves to do deep dives into the minutiae of whatever he's interested in. Obviously, like me. But where I may do obscurish writers and vintage holiday cards, he's a big music buff. Music of all kinds, but especially folk music, like real folk music. Not just Dylan and Peter, Paul, and Mary, but the kind of stuff that may not ever have even been recorded. So I was complaining one day or something about not really being able to do music shows anymore because you know, so many other people out there do Christmas music so much better than me and just have time to listen to everything. Then he asked me how many of them had talked about Christmas murder ballads. That was when I knew I'd chosen the right co-host, because no, I had not heard of Christmas murder ballads, but I already knew he was setting in for at least a good like half hour of stories to tell me, and so I told him to wait until we had the mics going, and lo and behold, here we are. Because yes, there is a long tradition of American folk songs about murders that were set at Christmas or Christmas Eve. Who, as they say, knew? Now, Christmas may not be the big focus of these things. A lot like Christmas ghost stories aren't always about learning the true meaning of Christmas or even about really Christmas at all. 
So I'm not going to lie, there's not a huge ton of Christmas content in this episode, but what you are going to get is a whole lot of violent strangeness that kind of floats around Christmas in our beautiful, screwed-up country's folk music history. Some of the songs are actually going to be a little familiar, but I guarantee you, you won't know the whole story and you'll find a lot of new things too. Plus, I just think James is a great storyteller, and I hope you find his brain's wonderful collection of connections and examples as fascinating as I do. And maybe you'll find a new Christmas standard you can teach your kids. I mean, whores, guns, adultery, booze, and death. What else do you want in a Christmas song? Hey, Craig. Hi. Weird to... It's, <laughs> a, it's not really weird, because I'm still sitting in exactly the same place I am when we talk the other <laughs> it time. It feels just the same. <laughs> I guess we're going to talk about some folk songs some standards yep some secret christmas music yeah i haven't done music in a long time i realize there are so many people out there who are obsessed with christmas music and are much better at finding unusual things so i kind of backed off but you for our show have been finding great stuff <laughs> and everything that has just perfect little thematic or lyrical fun takes on whatever it is we've been talking about and you were just coming up with some things anyway one time. You're like, look what I found. Look what I found. And I thought to myself, well, there's a way to fill an episode. Make James <laughs> go do some more work. And sure enough, here we are. Yeah. So this is my excuse for a music podcast to, to let somebody else's taste get in here and mess with us just a bit. Well, as you know, Craig, I love folk songs because of their ability to just put on new skins and still remain exactly the same. Mm -hmm. In the... Uh, 18th century, someone wrote a poem called The Unfortunate Rake about a guy dying of syphilis in a hospital, <laughs> bemoaning his girlfriend who didn't tell him, and now it's too late. And then it merged with the Irish ballad of uh, the bard Amach, and it got a different flavor. In Ireland, it becomes a dying soldier. And by the time it gets to Texas, it's a dying rowdy cowboy in the form <laughs> of the streets of Laredo. And all the while, it's keeping its original tune in meter. But passing through Appalachia and other threads, it retains its original theme of a man dying of syphilis. But as it passes through the hands of American slaves, former slaves and their descendants, the tune gets an entirely new meter that requires a change in melody. And when it appears in the bars and brothels of St. Louis and New Orleans, it's the gambler's blues or St. James infirmary blues. And now it's about the moment a man finds out his girlfriend had syphilis and died and he goes to look at her body and he doesn't hold it against her for not telling him and effectively killing him so much as the cheating <laughs> and he forgives her and then starts planning his funeral just as the song goes in the streets of laredo so these songs have a history as intriguing as any band's documentary that you'd watch on vh1 <laughs> so my favorite folk songs are true crime murder ballads. And I actually didn't know this about you. <laughs> but I'm uh, happy because <laughs> it turned out well, but but I, I wonder if your wife knows. <laughs> well, we don't have to tell her everything. <laughs> These are folk songs of killings written about recent events. They had the appeal of novelty songs, but some of them were such 
good songs on their own that people couldn't stop singing them. Uh, the song Frankie and Albert, uh, also known as Frankie and Johnny. These were real people. Frankie did kill Albert for loving up Nellie Bly. <laughs> Ella Speed was a real prostitute who was murdered by her boyfriend. Once upon a time, people were on trains with strangers for a long time, and they had no devices to stab off boredom. So they just end up singing songs, and they'd make up verses on the go and repeat the favorite verses that they remember of these songs. And they would just grow and grow and spread across the country. We're all familiar with this as kids. Like, Craig, where did the song Jingle Bells, Batman Smells come from? Right? We would all get on buses and we would sing. I don't know when someone said we're going to sing a song. We just did. Actually, I think someone claimed to have traced it to Southern California, but not specifically to the kid who wrote it. (laughs) What about the silly version of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer? It's all a mystery. It's everywhere, and no one has to teach these songs to anybody. And that's the way it was with these murder ballads before adults climbed into their personal cars and trips got shorter. So, yeah, now we know these songs primarily through the musicians that recorded them. But at one time, these musicians were singing back these songs to us from the Great American Songbook. So in a lot of ways, they're like carols. They actually are old community songs. Yes. Instead of about... The coming of the Lord in the middle of winter. It's all about murder. Yeah. Yeah. Someone who did him wrong. Yeah. (laughs) Now, I don't know why, but in America, these songs, at least the ones that have become most ingrained in our song tradition, primarily grew out of a very specific period in the mid 1890s to the early 1900s. So, you know, maybe it was a fad. But as we'll see, if an event were sufficient to shock the public sensibilities, you can still get a lot of songs as late as 1929. But by that time, you know, with the phonograph and the radio, there's not a lot of opportunity for the songs to disappear into our American flesh and reemerge in various formats. Still, pretty good murder ballads, I'd say. Now, the reason you and I are talking about these songs, Craig, I mentioned to you that a common feature of a few of the best murder ballads is that they were based on killings that happened on Christmas and Christmas Eve. Mm-hmm. And we can speculate as to why this is, but there's little mystery as to why murders might happen at these times. Alcohol. <laughs> it, it has always been a favorite time to get drunk. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Okay, so let's get started. Ah, can you hear me rubbing my hands together? <laughs> uh, okay, so this first one, we're going to talk about is about young Delia Green, 14 years old, who was murdered on Christmas Eve, 1900. I bet more people have heard this one than some of the other ones. No. I would imagine. Oh, well. At least some versions of it. Yeah, well, that's probably, yeah. Depending on where you get your music, that's probably true. Right, right. Delia, oh, Delia, Delia all my life. If I hadn't a shot for Delia, I'd have had her for my wife. Delia's gone one more round. Delia's gone. It's just a, it was just a really sad and pointless death. She lived in the segregated black quarter of Savannah. It's mostly public buildings there today. There's absolutely no evidence she was a prostitute, despite what some of the earliest recordings of the song say. She'd been going out with 15-year-old Moses Houston for a few months, and his nickname was Cooney, and that's going to matter. So it's Christmas Eve, and she's at the house of an adult friend. Cooney shows up in the afternoon, 
pretty tipsy from drinking somewhere. And in the conversation, he works in a brag that he and Delia have been having sex. And she calls him a liar and a son of a bitch. I mean, whether it was true or not true, she's 14 years old and she wouldn't be happy about his announcing this in front of everyone. So he doubles down and says they've done it as many times as he has fingers and toes. And things don't get better from there. So Cooney was warned to settle down. And then after a few minutes, he gets up to leave, turns around, and oh, he's got a gun. He shoots her in the groin and runs. Delia Green died at 3 a.m. Christmas morning. So Moses was tried as an adult. So the defense had him wear short pants at trial to highlight his youth, but he got life anyway. However, he was pardoned by the governor after 12 years. After a life of petty run-ins with the law, he died, it appears, in New York City in 1927 in his early 40s. Only one year later, a folklorist tracked down the real Delia Green, whose grave, by the way, didn't get an official headstone until March of this year. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's pretty cool. So by 1928, though the song about Delia had become a popular traditional, Reese Dupree's band had already recorded a version in 1924. If Cooney Houston ever heard the recording, he probably didn't recognize himself in it, though. Tell me, tell me, funny how the song is about being sad that she's gone when that's not the most tragic part of it. I mean, the <laughs> tragic part is she didn't, she died for a weird kind of jealousy. Right. Yeah. And now, so it's not really, it's not the typical sort of lament for something. So not specifically about Christmas, but I like that the fact that since this happened on Christmas, it has this sort of, I don't know, extra tragic layer to yeah. it. No, you imagine the family it. all around. All together. Them. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But just darkness. Yeah. So for one thing, in this song, Delia's name has become Delia Brown. Sometimes Cooney has been renamed Curtis or Cuddy or Tony. And if you're familiar with murder ballads, you can hear the crosstalk between them in this one. There's a little bit of Frankie and Albert, a little Staggerly, a little bit of Jimmy Rogers' Tears for Texas. Another, which is another murder ballad. One thing that does persist in this ballad thread is Delia's first name and the word gone. One version of this song is all my friends are gone. Uh, One thing that is common for Delia songs, but not universal, is told from the perspective of the killer. Delia cheated on him, so he killed her. In this version, he's going to go after the guy she was cheating with, too. That's the one rounder that's gone. In this song. In 1934, a singer, Will Wynn, no relation, different spelling, recorded a version that I've never heard, but I've read the lyrics. The title is Delia Holmes. And you can see why running down the origin of this song is going to be difficult. What's interesting about it is that it references how quickly this song was everywhere at once. The chorus in this one is Crying all I had done gone. Two verses talk about Delia's mother taking a trip west to get away from having to hear about the death of her daughter. 
but the song has moved faster than the train. And everywhere she goes, everyone is singing that song. The verses go, Delia's mother taking a trip out west just to keep from hearing the talk of Podelia's death, crying all I had done gone. Everywhere the train would stop, you could hear the people moan, singing that lonesome song, Podelia's dead and gone, crying all I had done gone. So like I said, I can't find the Will Win recording, but in the late 60s, Spider John Kerner covered it, and it stands out as being completely different from every other modern rendition. For me, this is my first choice of Adelia song, simply because I've listened to the other modern versions to death. I just love this one. All right. song that's all about the mother like just this idea that there's a song about how popular a song is and so the mother has to leave and still is haunted by this song that follows her everywhere oh yeah i mean that's just tragic (laughs) i mean haunting is a good word for it right yeah yeah and it's uh, and most of these songs by the way these delia songs are kind of peppy little tunes (laughs) mm -hmm. i have no doubt that it was much like that for the delia holmes song but that's so, I mean, such a different way to think about how music travels, too. Because even if it's not one song that everywhere she goes, she hears somebody singing a version of the right. song that got popular. Right. Uh, that's crazy. I know I can't help it, but I'm thinking of, like, Mary hearing stories of Jesus' death forever, uh, <laughs> like, for the rest of her <laughs> life. Well, and, yeah. So, you know, <laughs> songs and carols about, yeah, about this horrible thing that happened. That, yeah, right. No, you're right. It does seem kind of upbeat. I know, and I think the way that we react to a lot of sort of older folk and blues sometimes is to us sometimes it can all sound a little bit more upbeat. But they've got this vein of darkness in them. And mm-hmm. that's, that's true. Yeah. That's not just, you know, these murder ballads either. All right. Well, another early version is by a Bahaman band in 1935, the Nassau String Band, singing Delia's Gone. The first time I saw Delia, I took her for a ride. The second time I saw her, she promised to be my bride. Delia's gone, one more round, Delia's gone. On Monday, Tony was arrested, on Tuesday his case was tried. The German brought him guilty, and his sentence was to die. It is gone, one more round, it is gone. Now that's the version that gets close to the Johnny Cash version that I think a lot of people have heard. Yeah, yeah, that is the tune. Right. These uh, Delia songs actually come off in two separate veins, and that mm-hmm. is a major vein right there. It's probably the most popular vein, but that has come to us through uh, country music. Yeah. So the other vein 
is by Blind Willie McTell, uh, recorded various times in the 40s. Sometimes it's Delia and sometimes it's Little Delia. Listen to this one. Delia, Delia, how can it be? Say you love all rounders and don't love me. Now she's one more round of gold. Delia, Delia, say that I'm all alone. Some of you rounders going to pay my way back home. Cause she's one more round of gold. So in all of McTell's versions, Delia herself is referred to as the rounder, which is pretty brutal memorial given to what the true story is. <laughs> and his branch of the song tradition is of Delia being a rounder or a gambler, that is a casual prostitute. Yeah, you know, we have other words for that now today. Yeah, and that, that whole angle on it, just when you had told me this, that that, that changed sort of the whole vibe. Right. Know? this song that I thought before, which was kind of tragic before, but, you know, you find out that I killed her, you know, in the Johnny Cash version, he eventually says, you know, I had to kill Delia, and you're like, oh, well, that's sad, but then you're like, oh, and then there's this whole other darker story that goes with it. Right, yeah, and here the killer's name is Cuddy, sometimes Kenny, maybe. In McTell's earlier version, the chorus is, she's all I got, and she's gone, which is better, I think, than the later one that he repeats, the Reese Dupree chorus, this time, one more rounder gone, which Ooh. is yeah, herself, yeah. yeah Bob Dylan did a really good rendition of McTell's version on his World Gone Wrong album. Dylan's later straight folk song albums from the 80s are incredibly underrated, I think. You should check out the fingering. After those albums, when people do these songs, they usually are covering Dylan's, not the original artist. The other branch like I said, that came down through Blind Blake and his Calypso band. In this one, the killer's name is Tony. It's become a call-out song where the singer sings the verse and the crowd sings the chorus. Tony was on one Saturday night And she cursed him such a wicked curse that is where to take her life. Deal your gone, one more round, deal your gone. The first time Tony shot Delia, well, he shot her right in her side. The second time he shot her, she gave up the ghost and died. Deal your gone, one more One is a real earworm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's funny to me how much, in strange ways, Christmas music always comes back to Calypso music in certain ways for me lately. It started with Mitchell Kezen and his movie about underground Christmas music, where he goes and he actually gets a Calypso band to redo one of the his favorite songs. But a- after that, it, I always find Calypso music connected to Christmas in some way or another. So I know this is a very tenuous connection right here. But <laughs> just to hear a little bit of a Calypso band doing one of these. Yeah. Fits. Anyway, that's that totally tangential. <laughs> May not even make it in the show, but, but <laughs> it's <just laughs> kind of funny that it happened. Uh, but let's face it, this is more fun to sing out loud than McTell's version. And this is why it was so much more popular, I think, than McTell's. Most renditions follow Blind Blake's verses and tune. Mm. For people who knew nothing else about it, by the 30s, 
it was a Caribbean song. It's come to us in contemporary times, most famously, though, via Johnny Cash in 1994. And we can play a little bit to provoke your memory, but it gets much darker than Blind Blake's. And the video that was released with it is darker still. He did it before in the 60s, but then it had that early Johnny Cash vibe. And this version, Cash does for this song what he'd later do for the Nine Inch Nails song, Hurt. Delia, oh Delia, Delia all my life. If I hadn't shot poor Delia, I'd have had her for my wife. Delia's gone, one more round, Delia's gone. I went up to Memphis and I met Delia there. Found her in her parlor and I tied her to her chair. Delia's gone, one more round, Delia's gone. She was low down and trifling And she was cold and mean Kind of evil make me want to grab my submachine Delia's gone, one more round, Delia's gone First time I shot her, I shot her in the side Hard to watch her suffer, but with the second shot she died. Delia's gone, one more round, Delia's gone. That's the one that got super popular off those albums, because he did it, what, was like four of them that were right, like American yeah. recordings or something like that? All the redone, and yeah, so he did Nine Inch Nails, and he did covers of all kinds of ones, but that was the one, the first one I remember seeing the video of, and that got a whole lot of play with that. Also, by the way, he did one by Bonnie Prince Billy, somebody else I like, but I See a Darkness, he did a yeah. version of that song. Mm-hmm. There. Yeah. That, one of my favorite ones, but but yeah, he, but he added just a real vein of hate in the oh, yeah. song as well. Oh yeah, right. oh yeah. It gives the sense that I just went off to kill her. Yeah. <laughs> she was she was evil and cold and mean and yeah. right. Delia's gone. One more round. Delia's gone. So okay, let's go to another one then. This story is, if possible, even sadder. It's the Lawson family murders. Shortly before Christmas, 1929, this is kind of late, as I said, for new murder ballads. Charles Lawson, prosperous tobacco farmer of Germantown, North Carolina, took his wife, Fanny, and their seven children from the farm that he'd bought two years earlier, and he took them into town to buy new clothes and have their picture taken. Marie, 17, Arthur, 16, Carrie, 12, Maybelle, 7, James, 4, Raymond, 2, and Mary Lou, 4 months. Then on the afternoon of Christmas Day, after everyone opened their presents, he sent 16-year-old Arthur on an errand. And then as 12-year-old Carrie and 7-year-old Maybelle were walking away from the house to visit their aunt and uncle, their father, Charles, ambushed them from a distance with a 12-gauge shotgun, killed them, laid their bodies in the tobacco barn. Then he went back to the house. He shot his wife, Fanny, on the porch, 
17-year-old Marie saw the whole thing and screamed, but he quickly shot her. James and Raymond, four and two, ran to hide. He killed them too. And then he killed the baby. Then he went into the woods with the shotgun and after a few hours shot himself. Now, there are theories about the motive that a recent head injury had affected his mood. 60 to 80 years later, there were books claiming secondhand testimony that nefarious things were happening in the Lawson house, including that Charles had impregnated Marie, the eldest. But the truth is, no one knows why Charles did what he did. Arthur, the only surviving family member, never had anything to add. He died 16 years later in 1945 in a car accident. But not long after the murders, Charles's brother, Marion, turned the house into a tourist attraction, <laughs> a cake that eldest daughter Marie had made that Christmas day sat on the kitchen table. They eventually had to put a glass cake server over it because people were picking the raisins off of it. <laughs> now, the first recording of the Lawson murders was written within months by Walter Smith, that's also known as Kid Smith, backed up by the Carolina Buddies. It was called The Murder of the Lawson Family. Now, this one is different from the Delia song. It's not a true folk song, and that's probably due to it having been written in the time of records and radio. People don't fiddle with the tune. They don't fiddle much with the verses. They sometimes change the title and put their own magic into it, but the song is pretty much the same through the ages. After Kid Smith released the song, it remained you know, just one of their songs for a quarter of a decade. And then, in 1956, the Stanley Brothers dusted the song off changed its name to The Story of the Lawson Family, and boom. I mean, if you have a bluegrass song to introduce to the world, you need to dig up Ralph and Charles Stanley from their graves and have them put their spin on it. If you don't know who the Stanley brothers are, in the movie, uh, Oh, Brother, Where Art Thou? When the clan yeah, yeah, sings yeah. Oh, Death, that's Ralph mm -hmm. Stanley. Oh, death, Won't you spare me over till another year? But to really appreciate them, you have to hear them play. sad sad dark yeah and the bluegrass just makes it even weirder mm -hmm. you know i bluegrass always seems really weird to me i mean i like it there's actually a lot of bluegrass that i've, I've played for a while but uh, it always just has this weird vibe to it so to actually have this like one christmas morning <laughs> yeah. and he took his family's life yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah, yeah. The singers that gravitate to this ballad tend to be those from Appalachia themselves. That is, you know, people from South and North Carolina, Georgia, Virginia, West Virginia, especially the Carolinas. It's a touchstone for bluegrass fans. All of them are great because it's a good song. In 1968, Glenn Neves covered it, changing the name to The Death of Lawson Family. In 1996, Max Wiseman's cover was titled The Ballad of the Lawson Family. I'll call out the version by Dave Alvin. Alvin was half of the 80s rockabilly band, The Blasters. I've seen this guy in concert, and I can assure you, he's the real deal. If he'd come around 15 years earlier, he'd been playing folk songs in Nashville and Greenwich Village. And then the Violet Rays have a pretty creepy version. Too creepy for me for repeating. <laughs> it was on a Christmas evening. The snow was on the ground. In his home in North Carolina. Definitely has a weirder, weirder vibe to it. Yeah. 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 Well, in uh, 1967, Doc Watson did his own version, and the song finally begins to take on aspects of a real folk song because although the tune and meter is unchanged, Watson wrote some new verses. And when this sad, sad news was heard, it was an awful surprise. He had killed six children and his wife, and then he closed their eyes. And now, farewell, kind friends and home, I'll see you all no more. Into my breast I'll fire one shot, then my troubles will be old. They did not care. Get a little divine retribution in there for that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, and also, you know, the you get the story of him sitting around, uh, actually killing himself. Yeah, yeah. Finally, in 2019, we get at last full folk song treatment for this story. The Macrobes released "Oh Charlie." It's a brand new song about the murders. As is the Macrobes' way, the song is just over one minute long. to blame but troubles can cause who's to say what the motive was the mystery lingers they won't live it down it's choking dead fingers tighten on Germantown town Charlie, what'd you do it for? 
that super vibrato bass will always be Twin Peaks to me. So that just adds <laughs> an extra bit of creepiness to it. <laughs> okay, Craig. And now this brings us to the great super monster of murder ballads, also taking place on Christmas Day. Taking any life is very sad, but compared to the other ones, you know, well, <laughs> this one, ha- like I said, this happened on Christmas Day, 1895 in St. Louis, Missouri. I'll read from a news report of the next day in a St. Louis newspaper. William Lyons, who will forever be remembered as Billy, 25, colored, a levy hand living at 1410 Morgan Street, was shot in the abdomen yesterday evening at 10 o'clock in the saloon of Bill Curtis at 11th and Morgan Streets by Lee Sheldon, also colored. Both parties, it seems, had been drinking and were feeling in exuberant spirits. Lyons and Sheldon were friends and were talking together. The discussion drifted to politics and an argument was started the conclusion of which was that Lyons snatched Sheldon's hat from his head. The latter indignantly demanded its return. Lyons refused, and Sheldon drew his revolver and shot Lyons in the abdomen. When his victim fell to the floor, Sheldon took his hat from the hand of the wounded man and coolly walked away. Dang, and we think politics is bad today. (laughs) Just a lesson. Don't go to your holidays and talk politics. (laughs) So apparently Lee Sheldon's nickname was Stack Lee, or sometimes Stagley. The earliest song versions are Stackley. Sheldon was tried and convicted of murder in 1897. He was paroled in 1909. Then he went back to prison two years later and died there in 1912. And that's what you call an uncomplicated murder. And yet... In 1897, a Kansas City newspaper advertised that, quote, Professor Charlie Lee, the piano thumper, would be performing stackily, like stack, like smokestack. Hmm. And from that, we can see that by the year of the trial, the song was already big enough hit that a performer could advertise based on the promise of playing it alone. Maybe it was, you know, the first hit. Did Charlie Lee, you know, write the first version? Uh, Was he advertising his new hit song? We don't know. We don't even know who Charlie Lee was. Lee Shelton might have heard this version of the song because it was apparently pretty popular among black laborers in Mississippi. It would be like a field call-out song. In 1910, folklorist John Lomax got a transcription of the verses of one version. And in 1911, two full versions were published in the Journal of American Folklore. I'm told there are written versions going back to 1903, but I've never seen them. Right from the beginning, I guess due to the impetus of musical meter, both Stagley and Stackley and Billy Lyons got extra syllables in their names. So it was Stackley and Stack Oly and Staggerly. That was the one that stuck. And Billy Lyons became Billy D. Lyons or occasionally something similar. I've got about a hundred versions of this song, separate renditions of this song on my computer, but that's not all of them. I've read there are at least 200 separate versions of this song. Wow. Recorded even? Like that many recorded? Um. 
I, I, I'm just curious. It would not surprise me. I think that I suspect that number is low. Oh, the wow. first known recording of the song were instrumentals. The first was in 1923, Wearing Pennsylvanians. And the title was Stackley Blues. And maybe the Pennsylvanians had decided he was Irish. A lot of versions actually make that leap. And then here, same year, Herb White Elf, same title. The fact that they're instrumentals is kind of amazing because it means that it was so popular already. Right. That it can be identified that way. Yeah, and the first recorded version with lyrics was also in 1924. But it's by Lovey Austin and her Blue Serenaders, and the title is Skeegly Blues. And it's just your random blues lyrics put onto the Stackley tune. So I guess the title was ironic. And the blues audiences were so familiar with the tune and would have been in on the joke that, oh, you know, you're tired of hearing this. We're just going to muck it up. So, right, no story of Stackley or the murders or anything like that. Just, we've got the tune, and then we're just going to sing whatever comes to mind. The next year, in 1925, Ma Rainey and Louis Armstrong recorded the first Staggerly lyrics. As, naturally, Stackley Blues. But she sang it to the tune that's most associated with the murder ballad, Frankie and Albert. The chorus was similar. He was my man, but he done me wrong. So in this one, Stackley is already, he's a bad man. He's the baddest man. So people get out of his way when he comes down the road and the law won't stop him, but there's nothing about the murder of Billy. Then in 1927, Frank Hutchinson, he does Stackley. Hutchinson's version is about the murder of Billy Lyons in cold blood. It sounds like he gets Billy Lyons name right, but maybe not. Billy is begging him not to kill him because he has two kids and a wife. Stackley's promise to take care of Billy's wife is there. There's a bulldog barking. That'll be foundational to this song. This has the story of the hat, and the hat is a Stetson, which becomes integral to the story. The chorus is all about that John B. Stetson hat, but in this one, the police have no problem arresting him. But Stackley has the usual suffering of murder ballads. In jail, he hears Billy walking around his bed at night. That's also a staple of the Delia songs. 
And there's also the staple of Billy going to the graveyard but not coming back. So then in 1928, Mississippi John Hurt. This is a very important song to the legacy. Here we have Stackley running free without the police being willing to touch him. Billy's wife and kids again. Here he uses a 44 to kill him, but they eventually do execute him. I don't know what it is about these songs, I guess because they rhyme so nicely, but it's always a 44 or a 42, 44 smokeless sometimes. I don't even know enough to know what a 44 smokeless is. But anyway, it's that, the, the course this time is that cruel stack of lee. Same year, Furry Lewis does a version. Billy Lyons and Stackley is the name of this one. In this one, there's nothing about a hat. Stack's real name is Richard Lee. The fight is over Billy beating Stack at dice. He carries a 45 in this one. Billy's sister, not his wife, begs for his life. And the refrain is, when you lose your money, learn to lose. And it's pretty catchy, too. I remember one September on one Friday night. Stagley and Billy Lyon had a great fight. Crying when you lose your money, learn to lose. Billy Lyon shot six bits. Stagley bet he passed. Stagley out with his 45, said you done shot your last. When you lose your money, learn to lose. Okay, what survives here is that Billy and Stack are arguing about Stack losing at dice, and that's why they're arguing. And the police are afraid to arrest him again. So as much as an outlier, Furry Lewis's version is, it's actually quite influential. A little later, Ukulele Ike, that's Cliff Edwards, does what today sounds like an uncomfortably racialized version. You've probably never heard of this guy, but listen to him, Craig, and let me tell me if his voice rings a bell. Listen, folks, I'm gonna tell you a story you've never heard. It's all about a high yellow colored man. That's truth in every word. I'm talking about the man called Stackley. It was in St. Louis on Pine Street. That's exactly where it was at. Stack up and shot himself a competing colored man on the kind of a dirty old Stetson hat. And from then on, they called him Hard Luck Stack Oldie. Yeah, I can tell. <laughs> unfortunately, yeah. Well, not unfortunately. Not like Disney has the best track record for certain old things. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, always let your conscience be your guide. <laughs> 
As for his reference to Stackley being a, quote, high yellow colored man, you know, apparently prison records say that Sheldon was 5'7 feet tall with a crossed left eye, not a pretty man, and relatively light skin. So maybe Jiminy was trying to inject a little historical accuracy into the song. I mean, he actually includes the precise location of the bar as well. Interesting, especially in that voice. (laughs) Well, in the blues circuit, maybe aided by versions coming out of prison where inmates are upping each other, each new version just gets darker and darker and also filthier. Uh, In R.L. Burnside's version, the bar's name is the Bucket of Blood, and Stackley is super evil while the cops are in greater fear of him. Eventually, he goes to hell and takes over. Even a lot of tamer versions, like the one by Big Bill Brunzi and the one by Mike Russo, just start with Stack just killing Billy and just revel in the murder. If you don't believe he's dead, come over here, boy, and look at the hole in his head. I don't know where they use these ones because uh, uh, especially the R.L. Burnside is actually kind of, it's pretty filthy. There's a uh, version from the movie Black Snake Moan where Samuel L. Jackson does a version of R.L. Burnside's version of the song. That time you could have heard the drop of a pin. That's when that bad motherfucker Billy Lyons walked in. In 1955, Archibald and his orchestra perform the rhythm and blues version that becomes, for all intents and purposes, the primary version. It brings everything together. The barking bulldog, the hat, of course, their gambling, and Stack Lee not killing Billy right away, but going home to get his gun, and Stack being so bad that even the devil won't arrest him. A 44, once again, they use these 44s in these songs because it rhymes so well. Delia is often shot with a smokeless 44. Probably also not historically accurate. I think this is the first version where the bullet goes through Billy and breaks the mirror behind the bartender. I was standing on the corner when I heard my bulldog walk. They were barking at the two men who were gambling in the dark. Yeah, and of course, in this version, he the fight is over the fact that he's lost his Stetson hat in a bet. Yeah, we're getting far away from the politics, which is yeah the thing I wanted to know like this whole time. Like, what was the argument actually about? <laughs> As songwriters, no, good songwriters, politics is boring. But a right. fight over a gambling, that's always good. <laughs> So, but then Lloyd Price covers that version by Archibald as a rock and roll song with the name Stagger Lee. And that was all she wrote, man. The night was clear and the moon was yellow and the leaves came tumbling down. Yeah, 
so now his name is Staggerly, but Lloyd Price was not above trying to expand his audience. And on his third appearance at American Bandstand, he changed the song so that Stagger and Billy made up at the end of the song and they walk away friends. So, you know, talk about your letdowns. That version is not copied by anyone anywhere. So here's a quick rundown of the early transformations of the Sheldon character's name during recording. We have Stackley Blues in 1927, Stackley 1927 by Frank Hutchinson, 1947 Memphis Slim and Big Bill Brunsey and Sonny Boy Williams II perform a version called Stackley, and sometimes titled Stagley. If they understood the song name to be Stagley, that would be a big deal because that's the earliest one I can think of with the title Stag with a G rather than Stack with a CK. 1950, Archibald goes with Hutchison Stackerly with a slightly different spelling. 1956 with Ed McCurdy, it's Stackerly. And for Woody Guthrie, it's Stagoly. And that's a milestone because Pete Seeger is going to follow Guthrie. And I'm almost certainly wrong about this, but I think Lloyd Price in 1958 is the first instance that I can quickly identify calling him Staggerly. Not to say the song turned to stone after Lloyd Price. Ike and Tina Turner have a great version in 1965 from the perspective of a bystander in the bar. In their version, Staggerly loses the fight. He was messing around with Billy's wife. And when you hear it, you'll understand that Jim Croce's Bad, bad Leroy Brown is just a rewrite of their song. So, Leroy Brown is just another Staggerly song. <laughs> and in addition, there's another branch of this song. 1928, same year as Mississippi John Hurt, the Down Home Boys recorded what they called the original Staggerly Blues. So they're trying to dig back and get to whatever the original version is with all the versions running around. I've read that their style might predate the blues, but I can't confirm that. I'm still trying to think of like how this goes back to Jim Croce. Wow. <laughs> so what's really interesting about this Down Home Boys version is they talk about him being a bully. He's a bully. He bullies all around. Uh, this is, version has a lot of the same elements as uh, the Mississippi John Hurt version that he would do that same year. Stack is a bad man. Why don't the police arrest him? Billy begs for mercy because he has little children, all to no avail. Murders on a Dark Night. There is no hat, and the reason for the fight isn't explained. Also, it seems that Billy is murdered with a 10-cent pocket knife. What's really interesting, like I said, about this version is that Stackley is described as a bully, and that brings us an interesting new branch to the Stackley legacy, the song Bully of the Town. And here's a 1961 Everly Brothers version of Bully of the Town. Every night I walk this town, she'll brown. I'm looking for the bully, but the bully can't be found. 
Beyond certain musical similarities, not much of Stack Ali can be found here, but I think most musicologists agree this is a true style of Stack Ali blues. And then The Clash did their own reggae versions called Rongam Boyo. So we haven't touched every version, I, like I said. Um, I, I've also read that this song has been recorded by 400 different artists, which I would bet $100, again, is an undercount, especially when you count all the branches. It's the story that anyone in rock and blues traditions feels like they have to take on. In the future, archaeologists might become convinced that our civilization only had one song. So there you go, Craig. That's amazing. That's a ton of cool stuff. All for murder on Christmas Day. Yes. Or Christmas Eve. You see what? <laughs> Christmas is truly a magical time. So. <laughs> but so many gifts. Yeah. So many gifts were given to us by taking life on Christmas Day. No, that's really cool because that, I, I don't know. I, I think that's exactly the kind of sort of rabbit hole of that I really love about this whole thing of like trying to find the weirdest little bits of lore or ways that a story gets changed over time. And I just absolutely love how much you can trace these songs, like these beautiful creative songs all the way back to these horrible things that happen <laughs> yeah. on Christmas Day. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's amazing. Like it's, it's just a wonderful, weird little niche of, I don't know. It's it's. I just think it's amazing. <laughs> like the amount of work that you put into this too is really cool. You'd be like surprised how, much how easy found. it was. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, I mean, I think you have a leg up on a bunch of people. But the fact that you were able to trace this much stuff, yeah. I mean, it's this is just this is the kind of thing that I wanted to get into history for, like to find out this level of detail of. So this is this is my Christmas present. Right here. <laughs> You're my friend. I asked you to do this, and you came up with such wonderful things tied back to the weirdest idea of like murder on Christmas, <laughs> and came up with this like such a cool story of how songs changed over time, turning the things that we know and recognize. I just think it's awesome. So I just want to say thank you. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas to you too. So thank you very much. And next time you and I talk, we will definitely be talking about the things we usually talk about, but I just think this is amazing. Yeah. All right. This is, this is Christmas for me. <laughs> we'll get, well, you know, you totally have a show in another world of like, let's find odd stories that get translated into folks, <laughs> folk songs and into songs that, you know, throughout history. So, oh. That's just really cool, man. Yeah, here, okay. Here, this is what you should go out with. Okay. All right, here we go. It was early, early one morning when I heard my bull 
some of you listened to this because you're rereading Wolf Folk and had no interest in my Christmas obsession until James got involved. I welcome you. And I gotta say the one other thing I know you'll like are the story contest episodes. Every year I run a little flash fiction contest and I'm literally right now in the process of reading all the stories to decide on the winning dozen or so. I got over 400 this year and it's hard. So much good stuff. James will always help me out when I get down to the wire because I always end up with like 50 that I can't decide on. Um, That'll be coming out in a couple weeks. So to everyone who sent in a story, thank you so much and be patient. It's coming. To everyone else, though, this is where I get a little selfish. Please look up Gene Wolfe. He's a writer. I bet most of you don't know, but he is um, he's a treasure and my life would be less good without him. James and I talk about him all year long, and if you like weird, he's your man. He's usually just categorized as um, a science fiction or fantasy writer, but I like to think of him more as a weird writer in that good weird fiction tradition. And if you dive into his stories or novels, you'll definitely see why. His masterpiece is usually considered to be the Book of the New Sun. That one's four or five or 12 books. Like I said, it's complicated. So if you want something shorter, just to get a taste, try the fifth head of Kerberos or Cerberus. Depends on how you pronounce it. The fifth head of Cerberus. It's three short novellas all published together. The first can definitely stand on its own, but the other two really deepen the story and you'll see what he's like. So James and I've also talked about his Christmas based short stories in a couple episodes, and I'll link to those in the show notes. And now I will stop proselytizing. I'm not a religious man, but if encouraged, I will try to convert you to wolfism. Uh, So I need to disencourage myself now. So speaking of stories, this is very late notice this year. But if you're interested in helping me read this year's ghost story, I'm looking for volunteers. So every year we do a communal reading of an old Victorian-ish ghost story. I've got it down to three and I have to pick the one we're going to do now. So if you want to help out, please send me an email to weirdxmas at gmail.com, weirdxmas at gmail.com, or DM me on whatever social media accounts convenient for you, even TikTok. And yes, I have a very, very, very few things up on that thing. If you want to help out, take a look at patreon.com. Like I said, right now, the things promised on patreon.com are... Uh, more generous than I've been able to do. So I need to change it from saying that I'm going to put out a podcast every month over there throughout the year. Um, But there are prizes, physical cards that I send out and extra content throughout the year. That's a great way to help. Also, if you just want to give me a one-time little help to pay for hosting or to pay for the prizes for the contest, ko-fi.com, ko-fi.com slash weird Christmas, where you can donate the cost of a cup of coffee, like three bucks or increments of more. So links there are all in the show notes too, but patreon.com slash weird Christmas and ko-fi, ko-fi.com slash weird Christmas. Otherwise, we are exactly one month to Christmas when I put this out. So you'll be hearing more from me very soon, more history, more stories, more grabbings of other bits of weirdness. Time for this odd little podcast tradition to get back in the full swing. So until next time, please. Don't let Santa stuff you in his bulging, sweaty sack. 
Till it's the last, you're the lucky day. 